it says there. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. 1 Peter 2, 13-17. Well, a recent Newsweek article by John Meacham was entitled The End of Christian America. Anybody read that article or see it? Online, it came out, I think was it last week or a week before, or right before Easter. And in the article, he talks about this massive shift that's going on in America in its religious outlook. And most dramatically, there's been a shift in New England. Uh, there was a poll that was given, and people were asked, is religion an important part of your life? And then it measured their responses. In New England, all six of the New England states ranked in the lowest ten states in the country for that response. Fifty-five percent or fewer said religion is an important part of their life in New Eng- the New England states. So of all the states, New England as a whole, as a block, was took six of the lowest ten. Now, you can debate what do they mean when, when you say is religion an important part of your life? Did people misunderstand that? Perhaps you can, but the reality is there's been this massive shift in our country's outlook in regards to faith, and, and, and I think especially Christ, the Christian faith. A massive shift, and a massive shift here in New England. In such a culture that's shifting and changing, we will encounter people. We do encounter people who have an unfavorable view of Christianity. And it's going to happen more and more. Listen to a few quotes I think we have to put up from some work by the Rainer Group, looking at people's attitudes towards Christianity. Here are some of them. Aren't Christians supposed to be nice? My impression is that Christians are snotty. Also, my first impression of preachers is that they are scary. Christians just think they are better than everyone else. Becky from Ontario. But what I can't understand is how anybody can claim what a, that a book has some kind of special power. You either have to be a nut or have a low IQ to believe that. I'm amazed at how many nuts really do believe there is something mystical and magical about mere words. Most of them, pastors, are criminals. They're always recovering from something. But people let them get away with anything. These men are no better than anyone else, but they always get exalted. Chantez from Michigan. Now, these attitudes represent nationwide, from a survey done uh, in 2003, about 5% of the population. It's not the majority of the population. I think in New England it's probably double that, perhaps 10% of the population, has this sort of view of Christianity. They have a, a largely negative view. And with the cultural shift that's going on around us, it's only going to increase. And I believe especially among the young people, this is a growing perspective on Christianity that, uh, that would line up with some of the, the attitudes that we heard through the, uh, these three people. 
So what are we supposed to do? What should we do as, as God's people in light of this reality, in light of the, the unfavorable view and the growing unfavorable view? Well, First Peter has much to say to us about what to do. The reality is that for them, they lived in a culture that wasn't just 5 to 10% having an unfavorable view towards Christianity, but probably was 50 to as almost 100% unfavorable. That's part of the context that Peter finds his readers in, and Peter addresses this. There's a, a theme throughout the book of 1 Peter about this concern. Peter is concerned for his readers, for how they live amidst a culture that was full of critics. And so there's a number of verses throughout the book of First Peter where he's addressing this. You can put those verses up. We'll just kind of go through them quickly. You, you see throughout First uh, Peter 2.12, right before our section, it says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. First Peter 3.9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. That, that is critical speech, negative speech towards each other. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. Three, uh, 3.15, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. 4.4, four, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. 1 Peter 4.14 If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And 4.19 Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. This is a theme in Peter. He's concerned for his people because they live in a society that largely had a negative view. And he wants to speak to them about how to answer their critics. And that is the title. Actually, the title this morning is Silencing Our Critics. Peter wants to lead the people of God that he's addressing in addressing their, the criticism they re- receive that they might silence their critics. They lived in a very, a very aggressive society against them. There were things, uh, Edmund Clowney says in his, his commentary, Christians were often charged with subversion of the established order. They were accused of spreading disloyalty against the government, of disrupting trade, and of all manner of shocking practices, including cannibalism and incest. That is the context. So what does Peter say for us to do? What does he call us to do to answer, to silence our critics? Does Peter suggest that we mount a PR campaign, we get a PR specialist, a public relations specialist, and and we get the word out, we do a marketing campaign, and we have these cool posters of Christians looking really cool and friendly, and we, we want to change the image in the society that Christians are actually cool, and they're nice people? Is that what Peter says to do? Does Peter say, well, what you've got to do is you've got to kind of get out and you've got to start a whisper can- campaign against the people that say those things. You want to discredit and malign them. And if you can undermine them, then you get rid of them, and then now you can project the image that you want to project. Does Peter say that? Does Peter say that we should isolate ourselves? The world is mean and nasty, so pull away. We'll go create our little Christian enclave. We'll all move into this building and live here, and we'll just be our own little happy family. And that's how we answer our critics? No. That never works, by the way. And I'm not even thinking about it, just worried. No, Peter says something differently. 
really at the core of this section of Scripture, the core of this paragraph is verse 15. He says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. How do we deal with the voices of our critics, according to 1 Peter? We silence them. How do we silence them? By doing good. And what he calls the people of God in this entire book to is to do just that. To do good. To do good in every arena of life. In light of Christ, in light of the grace of God, the life of Christ in us individually and as a people, we are called to do good in every arena, every relationship, every context. And the book is just full of that. Full of the call to do good and to silence our critics through that. Peter's call in light of persecution, he says a lot of things that he wants us to understand, but one of the things he wants us to understand is we are to do good to answer our critics to silence our critics. And today's passage in particularly, he is talking about doing good in the civic arena. He calls us to do good in the civic arena, in the area of government, in the area of of the, the city that you live in, the community that you live in, in its governmental functions. So let's just take a minute to kind of look through the flow of thought in this paragraph, and then we'll dig in a little deeper into some of the key concepts. So as we look through this, we see, first off, we want to look in verse 12. And Jeff touched on this last week, this wonderful call to to holiness and to doing good, to fighting the battle against the passions of our flesh that we might instead do good. And right there in verse 12, it's calling us to do that, that we might silence our critics. And then he calls us in verse 13 to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. He calls us to do good by being submissive to every human institution, to be submissive to the, the civic structures that are in place. And he calls us to be subject to the emperor. Now, we don't have an emperor, but in those days they had an emperor. His name was Nero. He wasn't a very nice guy. And Peter calls them to be subject to Nero. Not only to be subject to Nero, but be subject to his delegates, the local governors who are sent by him, delegated by him to rule over the local province. And Peter touches on something, we'll get into this later, that these delegates are sent to punish evil and to praise good. And we'll visit that a little bit later. So there is a God-given function of these civic authorities that they are to punish evil and reward good. Ultimately, we'll see that that comes from God himself, and we'll talk more about that. So we are to submit to these authorities to, to support them. And then we hit verse 15. This is the will of God. By doing good, we might silence our critics with how we relate to civic authority. And then in 16, he says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. I believe Peter is talking about in the civic arena here. He means certainly beyond that. But we are to live as those who are free. We are Christians. We are free from the law. We are free in Christ. We're forgiven. And we don't have to obey the law in the way that that those who are under the law would, thinking that I'm going to obtain some sort of righteousness before God, please God by doing this. No, we please God because Christ has pleased God and we are in Christ. We have a freedom. We're forgiven. 
We're not under condemnation anymore. We're free. We don't approach the law trying to earn God's favor. Christ has already earned God's favor, so we're, we're free. But don't lose, use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as slaves, as servants of God. We ought to say, well, I'm free, so who cares? Why should I do anything? Who cares about loving God and loving others? I'm free. Don't use it as a cover-up for evil. Don't use it as a cover-up for laziness and neglect of love and honor to others. But instead, use your freedom to be a slave to God and to others in your love. That's what Peter calls us to. So we are to submit to the leaders and we are to support our community in the civic arena. And then finally he finishes, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. We are to fear God alone, but we are to honor the emperor. That's the flow of his thought. But let's take some time to dig a little deeper into some of the key concepts. I want to talk about the the meaning of this call to submit and to support. And I want to talk a little bit about the motives for our submission. So the meaning. It says there in the beginning, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Be subject. Uh, it says in my translation, some others might say submit or something like that. The word basically means to submit. It means to come under the rule and authority of another. To come under. To, in a sense, lower yourself. Come under their authority. To, to follow what they call you to do as far as you are able before God, to do that, to come under them and to empower them to be successful in their leadership. So it isn't just begrudging, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. No, no, my attitude is I'm going to come under this guy and I'm going to help him be a good emperor by submitting and supporting him. Or I'm going to help him be a good governor. Or I'm going to help him be a good president or a good mayor, whatever it might be. I'm going to be subject to them and support them. I'm going to lower myself to honor them and empower them in their role of leading. Now, that's a radical call. Submission is a radical call. Because it means coming under someone else. And the call here is to be subject to the emperor. We struggle with being subject to our political authorities, don't we? We look around and we, we think, well, you know, is there... Ever an honest politician? The whole system makes, makes it so that they can't be honest. There's a joke about two old ladies who are walking around an overcrowded English churchyard and they came upon a tombstone and it said on the tombstone, Here lies John Smith, a politician and an honest man. One of the ladies said, Good heavens, isn't it awful that they had to put two people in the same grave? <laughs> and that's how we feel. Politicians aren't honest and, and, and how can we submit? But the call here is to do that. The call here is a radical one, and it's even more radical given their situation versus ours. We freely elect our officials. We are all part of the process. That's a blessing. It seems to work really well. These guys didn't do that way. They were called to submit to the emperor. The emperor at the time was Nero. Nero was not a good guy. You might have a hard time with Barack Obama. You might have a hard time with George Bush. Those guys are saints. They're Mother Teresa compared compared to Nero. They are are perfect compared to who Nero was. Nero killed his mother. He killed his his wife. He burned Rome down. At least that's what we think. He burned it down so that he could rebuild it in his own honor. He set the fires and most of Rome was consumed. And then he blamed it on the Christians because he needed to draw attention away from himself. 
He blamed the Christians. And then he's the guy, you know, we hear about the, throwing the Christians to the lions. He's the guy who was most responsible for that. He threw the Christians to the lions. He put, he put them in the arena and put animal skins on them and had packs of dogs attack them. And then when he got tired of that, he, he, he dipped the, the Christians in wax and lit them on fire and would ride his chariot among them, mocking, saying, now you truly are the light of the world. That is who Nero was. And Peter's saying, this is actually before the worst of it had happened, but Peter is saying, and it would have held true, to be subject to this sort of emperor. It's pretty radical. Obviously, our ability to be subject to them does not lie in their character, does it? Our ability to be subject to them is not because they are good people or flawless people. Otherwise, Peter couldn't have said that. Couldn't have called them to be subject to the emperor. It lies somewhere else. Our call and our ability to be subject to the rulers over us does not consist, does not subsist in who they are and their character, but in who God is and how God works. And there's a hint of that here in this passage. As I said before, governors are sent by the emperor to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. The function of rulers is to punish those who are evil and praise those who are good. And if you turn to Romans 13, verses 1 to 5, there's much of the same sort of speech, same sort of words about, about rulers. Do you have that to put up? It says there, just listen for the same sort of things about the role of leaders. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Paul's call in Romans 13 is the same sort of call as Peter's. We are subject to leaders not because they're perfect leaders, not because we agree with them. We are subject to the leaders because they are those chosen of God, even in their sinfulness, even in their corruption. They are chosen by God and used of God to punish evil and praise good. They are just as much an authority over our lives, called of God, as our spiritual authority. Just like a pastor, pastors and deacons are called by God to lead the church and to oversee the church and care for the church, these guys are called by God to care and oversee the civic arena. And their calling is just as legitimate as a pastoral calling. But it is over the civic arena. So when you rebel against that authority, you are rebelling. I am rebelling. We are rebelling against God and His call. That is the core of why we are subject to these leaders. God is behind them. God is using them. We are submitting to God. We are to 
honor them. It's not just begrudging submission. It is honor. We are to honor them, it says in this passage. We, we are to, to respect them. We are to seek to promote their success, not begrudgingly submitting, just, well, okay, I'll put up with this guy for the next four years. No. That's not the call of First Peter. The call is, for the next four years, I'm going to pray for this guy. And I'm going to support all that I can. And in our process, we are blessed that we are, can engage in the process. We are to engage in the process in a redemptive way, not a destructive way. Yes, we might disagree. But we bring that humbly, lovingly, and with an eye towards making this leader a success. How about you? Do you honor your public officials? Do you honor the ones from the other party when they're elected? Or do you follow the gossip and slander that circulates out there on the Internet and elsewhere? Perhaps delighting in the downfall of officials you oppose. Now, I have done that. And I imagine you have. That's disobedience to First Peter. There's a, there's a degree of entering the process, and I'll touch on that in a few moments, but much of what goes on, sadly, among Christians, conservative and liberal Christians on both sides of the aisle, instead of silencing our critics, it empowers our critics. Christians should come at the political process radically different than the world. Regardless of how the system works, regardless of how the political machine normally churns out what it does, we are to enter into it differently. We are to enter into it subjecting ourselves to the current leaders, supporting them, And yes, bringing in truth. Yes, being salt and light. But doing it differently than the world does. There are all sorts of folks out there, they're not really interested in honoring the leaders. They want to destroy the leaders. We are to be different than they are. Even when we speak things that oppose our leaders, we are to speak differently, humbly, in a way that seeks to support them and encourage them. Part of the the key here is what it says in verse 15. Actually, verse 16, sorry. It says we are to live as people who are free, not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. We have freedom in Christ. There's a liberty, there's a freedom that is better and more important than any other freedom that's out there. Better than the freedoms in the Bill of Rights. Better than the freedom of speech, freedom of the press, better than the freedom of assembly or religion or privacy, better than all these freedoms, there is a greater freedom that we need. The reality is is that humanity is enslaved to sin. We are born with the effects of Adam's fall in all of us. There is an enslavement to sin. And we do what makes no sense. We do what is crazy. We, We rebel against the only reasonable way to live life based on what we see around us, based on the goodness of God, the only reasonable thing is to love God with all of our being because He's so good and gracious. And to love others as we love ourselves. To love one another as full equals. Caring for them like we care for ourselves. That's the only thing that makes sense. But, but the slavery and the, the sickness of sin causes us to, to, to rebel against that. And it is. It's bondage. And it leads to destruction. It leads to broken relationships. It leads to aimlessness. 
It offends our good and righteous and faithful, kind God. It's a slap in His face. We sit on His lap of His creation and we tell Him, you don't exist. And we slap Him in the face. That's what sin is. It's nuts. It's crazy. We are enslaved to it. But Christ has come to free us from that. He's come to pay the penalty for that cosmic offense against God. He went to the cross. He lived the perfect life. He was never enslaved to sin. He loved God fully. He loved others to the point of death on a cross. He paid for our sins on that cross with His death so we could be forgiven. The just penalty was paid by Christ. So the penalty is taken care of. And then in His resurrection, the Father approved of what He had done and raised Him from the dead. And then all those that place their faith in Him, He dispenses the power of the Spirit into our lives. And the power of sin is gone. It's no longer our cruel master. There's power now to resist and do what's right. And He will return. Christ will return one day soon. And we are looking forward to that. And the presence of sin will be banished forever. He has come to bring this amazing freedom. But Peter says, don't use that freedom. Don't use that liberty you have as an excuse for evil, to cover over evil, to be lazy and neglect the call to lay down your life for others. You are not compelled by the law by trying to avoid condemnation. You're free. You're forgiven. That truth has to be, has to be grasped and understood. But we move on from that place. Because He so loved us, we love Him and we love others. So enter the political realm with that in mind. That's what Peter's calling us to as servants, free, but deciding, no, I'm not going to be lazy. I'm going to use my freedom in Christ to give my life to God and give my life to others in the civic arena. That's what Peter's calling us to do. And we are to submit. and We are to support those around us. Christians should make the very best citizens for the most part. There may be regimes that come that that's just not the case, yes. But for the most part, Christians should make the best citizens. If we, by grace, follow what we're called to here in First Peter, we should make the best citizens. We should support and submit to our leaders. We should empower them. We should seek to bless our community. And in America, we have a, a really an unprecedented opportunity in history to enter into the political process in a redemptive way to follow First Peter in a way that we can affect our communities probably unlike any other time in history. We're called to that. We're called to engage. We're called to submit. And we're called, we're called to, to, to engage the culture on areas where they oppose us, where the current leaders oppose us, appealing for good. There's many ways we can do this. Let me just read to you one example. Someone in our church, actually, did they on the election of President Obama sent a letter and I think you can put this up making I believe a godly appeal to him and I think an example of first Peter two engagement. It says Dear President elect Obama, today I shed tears of joy along with hundreds of thousands of Americans for the great victory of your election. The significance of this moment cannot be overstated. 
our African-American friends have been oppressed and cast aside for generations in this country of ours. Now may the shame be completely wiped away and may the glory that this nation represents and strives for become a reality for more and more of our once silenced citizens. I confess I did not cast my vote for you, not because you failed to inspire me with your speeches, because you did, not because you did not impress me with your leadership and vision, because you do. I cast my vote for another based upon my concern for another segment of our society which is downtrodden and cast aside. The weak, the innocent, the unborn. Mr. President-elect, I pray that your heart would be burdened as well to do all in your power to encourage the life that is even now forming in many to come to fruition, to share in this great moment of our nation's history. We all know that times are difficult and no one will escape the trials of hand. Just as this is true, so is the gift and privilege we have to live it. May the millions of unborn get this chance as well. May the virtue of responsibility reign as mothers choose to carry the fruit of their wombs to term, to give the gift of life to another. I ask President Obama that you should prayerfully, would care, prayerfully consider your pay grade since indeed it has now risen at this moment in our history. May you be the champion of all those who are weak, yet share the same right to life. May God bless you and your beautiful family. That's the sort of thing First Peter 2 calls us to. Redemptively speaking the truth, loving our country, loving our leaders, appealing to them, taking action where appropriate to be salt and lighter. To ultimately bring God glory and to silence our critics for their good and His glory. There are many opportunities. And in a church like this, there are all sorts of ways that we can engage. Some of you will engage actually directly in the process. You might run for office. I, I will rejoice for that. Some of you will run for office. Some of you will support candidates of your choice as you consider the call of Scripture. I respect that, and, and we as a church respect those choices that are made. We seek to engage around the Bible. We recognize those choices might differ. The point is, as a believer, letting your Christianity and the truth lead you in how you interact. There are opportunities for us as, as a church and as individuals in our community. There are civic and community clubs we can engage in. So these are the sort of things that I believe... 1 Peter 2 calls us to. Yesterday, actually, we had an opportunity to do a cleanup as a church uh, to support the city. The city of Haverhill is limited in its resources, and, and they're responsible for a lot of green space. And so they had this day a cleanup day. And so uh, we, some of us here were part of it, and we went to Portland Street Playground. That's on the very end of Portland Street. That's the street that goes by the Y, if you know Haverhill. It's on the very opposite end, across from the Salvation Army building. Uh, and we went and we cleaned up a playground. The playground was a pit when we got there. It was full of trash and nasty stuff and, and all that. And we went in and the city supplied us the rakes, the shovels, the brooms, and so forth, the bags. And we went in and cleaned it. And it was clean. It looked really nice when we were done. And they even talked about coming in and removing the graffiti. And then the director of it asked us and invited us as a church to consider adopting this playground so that right there in the city, we might have a place where we can serve the city, keeping that playground clean every two weeks, every month, just going in and cleaning things up, and make a statement 
about our God to the community. Now, I didn't make that decision because I wanted to talk to you guys about it. I want to hear your feedback. But I believe that this is an excellent opportunity to apply 1 Peter 2. Now, there are many opportunities as well. But that is what we are called to do. We are called by God to be servants, to support, to support our leaders, to support our community, to bring God glory, to live as ambassadors of our King, actively engaging our culture and our community in the civic arena. Just a few other things in terms of motives here. As we look through this section, we see that this call, Peter calls us to, is to be subject for the Lord's sake. That must be such a core motivation for us. And I think we touched on that. It's in light of the Lord appointing these leaders. And it's in light of the life of God in us. God has come and we are redeemed from sin. We are forgiven. And we have this opportunity to live our lives fully for Him. Why waste our times in, in selfish pursuits? Why, why neglect opportunities to shine for Him? So for the Lord's sake, for His glory, because of His grace, under His Lordship, let us submit. There are lots of other motives to be involved in the political arena. A lot of lesser motives. Let us let those, leave those as lesser motives. For the believer, it is for the Lord's sake. Not for a political party, as good as that party might be. Not because we're irked by bad government, as necessary as it might be to address corruption. Not, not for our own power, but ultimately for the Lord's sake. Because of His grace, for His glory. We do this to silence our critics. Peter talks about this. And that is a good thing to ask as we engage in the civic arena. Does the manner and goal of my civic involvement, of my community involvement, tend to silence critics of Christianity? Am I living my life and engaging the community, submitting to leaders, that those who see me and know me who are not believers find it hard to criticize my faith because of what I do? They might disagree. They might even disagree with the particular things you're doing in the civic arena. But your manner and your goal of the good of your community should be so clear and compelling that they find it hard to criticize you, to silence them. And there's, there's lots of examples of this I, I can't touch now, but William Wilberforce, perhaps you've heard of him. He was a member of Parliament in England back in the 1800s, late 1700s, early 1800s. He is a man who has a legacy to this day that is still honored by believers and atheists alike because of his good deeds. He probably, more than anyone else, was, was the reason for the, the uh, cessation of the slave trade in Britain through his tireless effort. But also, his life, uh, he touched a lot of people in a lot of arenas beyond the slave trade. Uh, uh, John Piper, in his book on him, credits him even with being a major force in transforming Britain so that a lot of our impression of, of the of 19th century, the 1800s in Britain, of these people who were, who were bold and noble and, and were polite, was because of the influence of William Wilberforce in all these other arenas. Here's a man who gave himself fully, who did not take his liberty in Christ as, a, as an excuse to cover up evil, but gave himself fully and changed a country. And changed more than a country. I mean, he changed the slave trade. Other men, Abraham Kuyper, there's others throughout history, there's many Americans as well, who lived in such a way that their good deeds, even today, silences their critics. 
the final motive as well here, and if the band could come up as we close, is not just the silencing of our critics, but something beyond this and better. We see it in verse 12. We ought to silence them, but it says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of His visitation. How would someone who's previously a critic be glorifying God on the day of His visitation? How could that happen? They must have a change of heart. Right? To, to, and I don't think Peter's just saying they're begrudgingly glorifying God. I think what he's saying is, do your good deeds, live your life this way, so that not only do you silence your critics, but you so affect them with your good deeds that they end up encountering God, that they experience a heart change. Now, we as believers are called to good deeds. Our good deeds will not convert anybody to full faith in Christ. We must proclaim the good news. It is only through the the good news of the Gospel. But proclamation without demonstration is sterile. It is the demonstration of our lives of good deeds that prepares the soil. God's kindness leads us to repentance. Our good deeds creates a soil and an environment for people to be receptive to the proclamation of the Gospel. And in times in church history when the church has been active in good deeds and proclaiming the Gospel, there has been a harvest eventually. That's what we're called to. This isn't just about silencing our critics. It's about glorifying God by affecting our critics. Presenting a compelling picture of the beauty of Christ through our lives, through our good deeds, through how we relate in the civic arena. So may we be a people who do this. Let us not grow weary in doing good in this civic arena. Let us not give up, but to live lives submitting to leaders, supporting our community, that as we continue to labor this way, not giving up, in due time, a harvest might be reaped. A harvest of souls, a harvest for the glory of God. Lord, we just thank You for the grace that's come and changed our lives. We thank You, Lord, that because of You, we can now see everything differently. And because of You and Your truth, we can now look at our leaders and look at our community in a different way. Recognizing Your sovereignty over our leaders. So, Lord, help us to live in light of Your sovereignty transformed by the Gospel, relating to our leaders respectfully, honoring them, supporting them, engaging in the process in a redemptive way. Lord, I pray for each of us that You would lead us in specific application in this arena. It might just be how we speak about people we oppose. Submission, Lord, we know, is supporting those even we oppose. May we shine for You as we do that. Lord, there are other arenas as well that we can serve the community. Lead us in that. And Lord, we look forward to, as You transform us, we look forward to this affecting those who might have an unfavorable view of You, Lord Jesus. And may they come as they're touched by this. 
come to hear of you and give their lives to you. Make us a church that walks this way, we pray, for your glory. Amen.